Probably one of the most famous operas, Donizetti's Lucia de Lammermoor, exemplifies the golden age of bel canto singing. Find out more about Lucia on today's episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. From the vocal fireworks featured in the famous Mad Scene to the popularized sextet, Lucia continues to fascinate audiences. Many sopranos have taken on the role, including Maria Callas, Joan Sutherland, Renata Scotto, Lisette Oropesa, and the current Lucia, Nadine Sierra. I'm Stuart Holt, and on today's episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, we have lecturer Tanisha Mitchell discussing the inner workings of this operatic staple. So, Masterpiece and Madness and Lucia di Lammermoor. The question is, how can you have Masterpiece and Madness at the same time, only in opera? And the idea that you have a situation where it's a, a very horrific act, but yet that horrific act is accompanied by bel canto. What is bel canto? Beautiful singing. Can you imagine killing someone and singing very, in such a beautiful way? Those two things don't go together. But Donizetti had a plan and he knew the assignment and he did it. So what is bel canto? Bel canto, you know, when we think of it, it's 19th century opera, it flourished you know, in the early 1800s to the mid 1800s. And then when Verdi and Wagner came in, things changed. But bel canto, when we think of it, we think of our opera files, Rossini, Bellini, and Donizetti. Uh, But it started way before that. And I looked up this definition. Bel canto is very mysterious because it's like, what in the world does it mean? Uh, It's a style of operatic singing. It originated in Italy, but there's more to it. It started earlier than the 19th century. We're talking about the 16th century. And what I did, I created a little intro for you with a gentleman who was very, very instrumental in bringing bel canto back. Because when we think of opera and we think of the opera canon, We think of Puccini, we think of Mozart, we think of Verdi, we think of Wagner. And what started to happen in the mid-19th century, there was a decline to this style. And then it didn't come back at all until the 20th century. So what is bel canto? Bel canto means beautiful singing, but of course it's, it's only the beginning of it. The bel canto era began with the great singers in the middle of the 17th century. It started to begin, but it, it flourished and blossomed in the middle of the 18th century, the, even the early part of the 18th century, when the great castrati were, were at their, their peak. These, of course, were the artificial male singers who had these extraordinary powerful soprano and, and mezzo-soprano voices, which we don't have anymore. I'm happy to say, rather. Bel canto became a high cult in the, in the early 19th century. It's a style of singing. It's a very elegant way of singing. It's a, it's a way that's very hard to explain in words what it is. And Richard Bonning was very instrumental in bringing back bel canto into the opera canon. But he was very in, was interesting. He said that it started with the artificial singing of the castrati. The castrati were um, young men or who, who performed 
but they performed with a price. They were castrated in order to maintain their um, high tones. And so bel canto is really a, I would say, a renaissance of that, but without the castration. That's the style of it. So when we get into style, you have to understand bel canto has been around for a long time. It's just that in the, when we have Bellini, Donizetti, Rossini, they took that singing and they applied it to their operas. So you have a subgenre of opera, bel canto, and you have a style of singing, bel canto. And what's really interesting too, I have researched many singers and they use the technique to sing dramatic stuff. So you could, you could use bel canto to sing Verdi. Um, you could even use it to sing Puccini, believe it or not. But the subgenre is bel canto where it flourished. It's smooth legato singing lines, the ability to connect the voice throughout um, the line. Coloratura cadenzas. Well, coloratura is an ornamentation of a line. So I'll do something. Let's see. If you did That's just, you just sang hallelujah. But then if you want to add some coloratura, you could do And it's a specialty of singing. It's something that I really, really, really need to work on. But it's singing. And what it does is there's ornamentation. And what Donizetti does, and even the other two composers, they leave space for the singer's voice to be exposed. You're going to hear certain times tonight where there's a space and the singer does her or his ornamentation. And that's how you get a liberty in vocal expression that I will show you later. So I have a trivia. I want you to tell me which character is a bel canto character. You have two characters. Both of them don't want to get married to a certain person. So I want you to listen to both of the characters and tell me which is which. Here we go. Character number one. Number one. Number two. one is bel canto number one absolutely that was lizette oropesa and character number two birgit nielsen and we have lucia versus torandot and torandot said nobody was going to possess her <laughs> nobody but lucia she says to her brother you know, I love it. May God forgive you for your inhuman cruelty. So you can hear what bel canto is. And it, it fell out of style, but now it's back. A lot of opera companies perform it. And that's just to give you a background of it. So now we are into the music. I think it's important in order to understand what you see, I repeat, you have to know what you're hearing. It is in three acts, so you know when you're in act three that you're in the last act. Sir Walter Scott, it's based on 
The Bride of Lammermoor. It's loosely based on it. And our date of the debut, 1835, right smack dab in the center of the bel canto era. And the person who debuted Lucia was Fanny Tacchinardi Tercian. And she was known for having a very beautiful bel canto um, sound with the ability to sing excellent coloratura and a large range. And so throughout the years, when hiring someone, you want to hire somebody that could have that ability to sing. You can't hire someone that sings like Brunhilde to sing this. It won't work. And so in the 20th century, two ladies brought it back, Joan Sutherland and Maria Callas, another wonderful soprano, historic soprano, was also instrumental in bringing bel canto back. Um, the, the reason why I put both of them here, too, is there was a conductor named Thulio Serafin. And Thulio Serafin was Maria Callas's mentor. And he happened to conduct Joan Sutherland on her, when she debuted Lucia in 1959 at the Royal Opera House. So it started really with them in the 20th century. And last but not least, uh, Joan Sutherland was known for ornamentation to the max because she could do it and she could do it well. Maria Callas, on the other hand, would perform things as written. So now, Donizetti's personal life was just as much of a tragedy as it was as what he presented on stage. Uh, one of the things that I couldn't believe when I researched him was that his wife died, but we find out that all three of his children were stillborn. So you're dealing with your wife dying and every child that you have died. And it drove him into insanity. He was very popular amongst the people that love opera, uh, but that popularity was not enough for him. And so his life ended, his success ended in insanity. The Metropolitan Opera has done Lucia over 600 times, and it made its debut at the Met on October 24, 1883. Lucia uses what's called a glass harmonica. The glass harmonica was created by Benjamin Franklin in the mid-1700s, and Donizetti, he used it because of the sound. There's a hollow sound to it. But I want to read to you my mentor, Robert Sutherland, he's a retired uh, librarian from the Metropolitan Opera. Um, he says this, during the mad scene, the flute normally will go up to the front with the conductor because the flute interchanges with um, the soloist. And so that performances using the flute, what they would do is during the mad scene, the solo flute player would move up from the regular flute stand and he would sit with the conductor in order to see the stage so that he can take the cues, not only from the conductor, but from the singer. Another thing too, I just wanna note, the strings. You're not gonna see as many strings as you would see if you went to see Aida. Okay, and the reason for that is the balance with the, the woodwinds and the balance with the brass, and also it's the style of music. Bel canto exposes the voice, and so we're not going to overpower the voice with all these instruments at one time. We want the voice to flourish, and we want you to hear that. That was the idea of the practice. So now, this is what is the big hoopla. What Simon Stone has done, who is an Australian um, director, he's taken the idea of Lucia being in the 17th century and he's moved it up 
way up to present day 2022 um, in the American Rust Belt. Um, the reason for that, he, he, from what I see, and you're going to hear him speak in this, he wants you to, to me, look at Lucia as a timeless story that reflects who you are, okay? Now, some people don't agree with that, some people do. I want to go back to the original intent. It is Scotland, it is the early 18th century. And these are the characters we're dealing with. To me, these characters represent ideas. Lucia, the fragility of the mind. And we can relate to that today with the ongoing discussion of mental health. We can relate to that. Um, Lord Enrico Ashton, her brother, he's really seen as the villain. But in, in retrospect, he's practical. He knows that the family does not have any money and he has to figure out a way to bring money in. I'll just leave it at that. We'll talk more about that. Sir Edgardo de Ravenswood, he is a member of a rival family. So this is the Romeo-Juliet type of thing. And um, he and Lucia are together. They're secretly together. He represents hope. But <laughs> I think she put too much hope into him. I'll just leave it at that. He's her escape. And um, she, she doesn't know what to do without him. But she calls the shots, too. Act one. Now, the first, I always say this, whenever a character is on stage and they're talking about another character, that other character is very powerful. Her brother finds out, he's trying to figure out first, what am I gonna do? Well, he's figured out what he's gonna do. He wants to marry off Lucia to someone who is wealthy because they have no money. Uh, but Raimondo, he is the chaplain in this version of the opera. He says, oh, I don't know if you should do that. Her mother just died. You know, I don't think she's mentally fit for it. But then he finds out something else. And he finds out that Lucia is with Edgardo. He is this intruder that's been coming in. And when he finds that out, he is done. He is so angry. Um, this is Artur Rutzienski. Now, this opera production, this is Teatro Real 2018. <laughs>
He's clearly angry, and he's resolved that this, I got to marry this girl away because I need to keep her away from this gentleman. But on top of that, we need money. And so when Lucia first comes in, it's very interesting. Always listen closely to the music when the, ca the character first enters on stage. She talks about to her, uh, to Alice, um, she talks to Alice, her, um, her maid, about how she saw a ghost one night. Now, when she talks about it, she sets the mood for you. Instead of just saying, I just saw a ghost, she says it was dark as it was pitch dark. The moon was up. And it, it shined on the things that I saw, the fountain. And then over, I saw a ghost. Now, that is a foreshadowing because it is a foreshadowing of what will happen, okay? I really believe, spoiler alert, that she saw herself. That's what I believe, but I could be wrong. Um, and what happens is, the aria that she sings, Reniava nel silencio, it doesn't sound like what you heard her brother's music sound. It doesn't sound like that. It's in compound time. And for those who are not musicians, it's a beat that has multiple beats in it. So it's in 6-8. And in 6-8, it's a very pulsating rhythm. It's bum, bum, bum. Bum, bum, bum. So there are three beats in one measure. Three beats in one measure. And this creates a pulsating of what you are going to hear, okay? Three is very symbolic, okay? It's very symbolic in this opera. And you're going to hear three again. But this is six, eight. Zetti does is this. Everyone doesn't sing it like that, okay? I'm going to, I'm not singing the whole thing again, but I'm going to sing the cadence, okay? That's probably how Maria Callas would have done it pitch-wise. That is as written. She doesn't change anything. Well, I listened to Joan Sutherland, 
and she did something else. This is what bel canto does. It does something where you can change, you have the space to add ornamentation. Watch this. Have to, you have to hear, you know, Nadine Sierra, she's going to have her own way of doing it. And maybe Lizette Oropesa will have her own way of doing it. That is the hallmark of bel canto. So that is the liberty of expression. So we go on. And of course, there's the other gentleman in the whole dynamic. Edgardo, he comes in. And Edgardo is going off to the army. But before he goes off, he says, listen, I want to make up with your brother, okay? And maybe we could do that, we can get married, and it will be wonderful. But Lucia says, no, don't do it. She says, no, you have to wait. And Edgardo agrees, but they do exchange, I would say, they say vows, but they're not married yet. Okay, however, they are engaged, we will say. And so I want you to hear Javier Camarena. Pria di lasciarti, Aston mi vecchia, io stenderò placato a lui la destra, e la tua destra vegno, a noi di pace chiederò. of the circumstance. What kind of hope can you have in someone with a temper? And so Lucia is beside herself. She's in between a rock and a hard place. He goes off. And by the time we get to act two, you are going to see this is one of the first um, instances where you see Lucia with her brother. Look at the dynamic. So you're going to see here this is the duet where he, he knows that he has power over her, but he wants to see what she does in this moment.
Verai più lieta in questo di vederti, in questo di che di me ne ho le facci, s'accendono per te. that she is not going for this whole marriage thing. And then she eventually admits her, I would say, dalliances with Edgardo. And that makes him even angrier. And what he does is he's, he has a letter that's forged. And he says, look at this letter. This is Edgardo writing to another woman. And she just loses it. And by that time, she says, you know what? Maybe uh, this isn't the right thing to do. Maybe I do need to marry um, this new gentleman that you have. But anyway, that propels her into agreeing to marry um, uh, Arthur Booklaw. And she does it. And so by the time we get to the end of Act Two, because I'm not going to give it all away to you, there is a very interesting concept that Donizetti does. It's a sextet where we have six of the characters singing, and what they are accompanied by is by the not only the orchestra, but the chorus does play a call and response with them. Um, I thought that this sextet, to me, was the best that I've seen, and then you could compare it. This is from 1982. Now, what is special about this performance? This is Joan Sutherland's last Lucia at the Metropolitan Opera. The people who are in this cast, I am going to read as Joan Sutherland, obviously. Edgardo is Alfredo Kraus. Um, Enrico, her brother, is Pablo Elvira. We have Raimondo, Paul Pliska. Normano is John Gilmore. But here is the sextet.
this is the climax before the mad scene. She's married Arthur, and she didn't want to marry him. Then on top of that, Edgardo comes back. He sees that she's married this guy. He's angry at her, throws the rings on the floor, and he says, I'm done with you. And then her brother is saying, listen, get it together. <laughs> and so that is the climax before the real climax. And so I end today's program on, with this. The mad scene, what are elements of mad? Now, if you don't really, if you just sit through it, it seems as if it's going on forever. And most people want to see the blood. It is what it is. But there's more to it. I say that it's three parts, okay? You have the opening part, then you have the part where she's totally delirious. You see the evidence on her dress. And then the third part is where she's, she's further down. She's done. But what happens is this. Normally, when you see a person perform, you're, you are seeing them think their thoughts, and then you are judging the thoughts, OK? But in the sense of this, Donizetti brings you into not only her mind, but into what the people in the hall, in the wedding hall, are thinking. You see a woman come out, and she has blood on her. And you know, you already know what happened. I'm going to ask you, based on that, when she comes out and she's delirious, she doesn't know what's going on. But the audience, they feel very bad for her, OK? So I'm going to ask you, you don't have to be a musicologist to know this. You're going to listen to one and two. You're going to tell me which one do you think sounds like the cloudy day. This is number two, and this is also in the mad scene. Which one sounds like the cloudy day? Number one, absolutely. And number one, that sad sound is not necessarily her. It's what you're thinking as the audience, and you're saying, my goodness, what has happened? Someone has been murdered. And she's trying to figure out what in the world is going on. Here is the beginning of the mad scene, Il Dolce Suono. Joan Sutherland as Lucia de Lammermoor. It was Miss Sutherland's debut with the Metropolitan Opera Company and the foremost event of the current musical year. Tonight, the Bell Telephone Hour recreates her final minutes of that evening, the singing of the mad scene. Miss Sutherland as Lucia.
now there's part two. And part two of the mad scene is when she realizes she's now in the delirium and she realizes that I'm at the altar. But you don't see that. The music now brings you inside of her psyche. If she's at the altar, it doesn't sound like that. She's not sad, she's happy. And she says, Ardon Liacenzi, the incense is burning. This time, the whole marriage ceremony is starting to, is, is starting to happen. And I'm so excited. This is from the 2018 production from Teatro Real. And so part three of the mad scene is now she's way in delirium and you're going to hear something that sounds like a dance. And I'm going to just show you, this is your orchestra here. And what's going to happen is this. You're not going to hear everything here, but you're going to hear the strings accompany her. And she's going to be singing in three, okay? Three represents the waltz, and you waltz at a wedding. 
So it's one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. And I'm going to show you something. You're not going to hear the glass harmonica. You're going to just hear the strings. So it's going to be quiet. It's going to be black. But then you're going to see how the orchestra works. So what accompanies her would be only strings when the voice comes in. It's only strings, and then you see the clarinet comes in. And then after the clarinet comes in, we have, just towards the end of that phrase, we have the clarinets and the um, oboes and the bassoons. But I just want to show you, that is, the, that is the height of her delirium. She's now fully crazy. I just call it what it is. But that's what he wanted to do music-wise. We start off with the minor key. We feel bad for her. We don't know what's going on, but we know she's murdered somebody. Then we're brought in in the second part where she says, Ardon Liacenzi. We're brought into what she's thinking, but then we see the gruesomeness of what she did. And now, this is where she dances. This is the Spargi d'Amaro. The question is, what happens to her brother? He does his heart change because, spoiler alert, she doesn't make it. And what happens to Edgardo? I'm not going to tell you. You have to find out for yourself. But this is what Simon Stone says about his production. Opera creates this extraordinary ability to take him something that has been turned into the mythic through the sublimity of the music and at the same time reflect on, on contemporary experience in a way that makes us as contemporary human beings feel like it's possible for our lives to be sublime. That's when Caravaggio doesn't take a cliched face but he has the revolutionary moment where he puts a real Italian peasant or someone off the street that he found or a prostitute and he puts them into a biblical story and you suddenly go the bible means something to me and to us 
And that's what opera has been doing since the beginning of opera. It's saying it's about us. Donizetti created this music for us. We carry it around with us. And so since the beginning, I'm always trying to set, it, set all of my operas and my shows in, 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 the, in the place and in the era and the, the environs of the people who are watching it because the gift that Donizetti wrote was to create something to, truly timeless, which is a gift for you as well. It can feel relieving or relaxing to escape and go to a Donizetti and see it set in a different era. But it's, I think it's less of a transformative experience than the moment that if you can go, wow, this is about me, my family, my friends, us. And that music was created to be utterly contemporary and it is utterly contemporary and I think it is shortchanging to make it less than contemporary. That was lecturer Tanisha Mitchell discussing Lucia de Lamamore. Simon Stone's new production is currently on stage at the Met and will be featured live in HD in cinemas worldwide on Saturday, May the 21st, 2020. For more information, visit metopera.org. Be sure to follow the Metropolitan Opera Guild, the Metropolitan Opera, and Opera News on your favorite social media platform to keep up on all things opera. I'm your host, Stuart Holt, and thank you so much for listening.